Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hi, welcome back to Action 22, the uh, Making Action Happen show that we do for um, our entire region and across the country. Um, I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McKay. Hi. So I wanted to give, before we start, we've got a really interesting discussion for you today. Before we start that discussion, um, I wanted to give out two shout outs. This is, I'm taking a personal liberty to do these. Um, The first shout out I wanted to give to um, our show's executive producer, Tracy Motley. Tracy is out of Phoenix, Arizona. He is with the Voice America Network. Um, and he has done such a great job for us. When we came on last fall onto the network, he uh, has helped us and really given us a lot of, of great feedback, but has been super supportive and just helping us to get the show better all the time. Um, we got to visit with him last week and mm-hmm. just wanted to give a shout out to him. Um, and then I wanted, this is a personal one, but I wanted to give a shout out to uh, my, one of my best friends from college, Matthew Shaden turns 50 years old today. That's hard to imagine, but uh, happy birthday to you, Matthew. He listens to the show all of the time. So what we're going to talk about today, and we have a, a very, very, very important high level VIP to talk with us about this today. Um, But the question I'm posing is, why is housing the most important question that we're not talking about when it comes to economic development or economic health and um, energy in Colorado? So to help um, talk to us about this today, uh, I wanted, I'm going to introduce Reg Rudolph. Reg Rudolph is the CEO for San Isabel Electric Association. It's an electrical co-op. And full disclosure, Reg is also on the Action 22 board. So welcome, Reg. Hey, thanks, Sarah. So um, Reg is known for being um, super nerd. Um, he says that I'm the only one that's allowed to call him that, but a lot of I'm just the only one that calls that to him to his face. He reads all the time. He understands everything. Um, along and surrounds electric co-ops in Colorado. Um, And if he doesn't already know it, he is um, passionate about research. We'll say that way. So Reg, um, appreciate you being on the show today. Tomorrow we're going to be doing a big um, summit. It's an energy summit. We've brought a whole lot of people together, but to talk about energy and energy expansion in Southern Colorado and for this whole area. And I wanted to do this with you because this was a really important topic that I wanted to discuss that we're just not going to have time to discuss tomorrow. So first tell us a little bit about for people who maybe don't understand or who've never been part of an electrical co-op, will you give us a little history on San Isabel Electric, the electric co-op, how that works exactly? All right. Well, you know, San Isabel Electric has has been in business since 1938, serving Southern Colorado. And uh, being an electric cooperative, we're not-for-profit, so we're member-owned. And we're a a service-based business, not not a profit-based business. So if you buy your electricity from San Isabel Electric or any other electric cooperative, you actually are an owner of the company. Specifically about San Isabel Electric, just some background, is that uh, we we serve about 50,000 people 
uh, in southern Colorado. Uh, our distribution plant, if you strung all the poles and wires out to, into a straight line, you'd start in Anchorage, Alaska and end up in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, our service territory is pretty large over southern Colorado. It's the size of Rhode Island, Delaware and Connecticut combined. And we do it with 80 employees. So we're, we're very efficient in, in, in what we do and we have to do it because so serving rural Colorado with with a lot of the sparse areas and density that we have, you have to be efficient to make sure that it's affordable for people to live in, in rural Colorado. We've been, um, our household and my mom and dad before us and continue, we've been members of San Isabel Electric for a really long time. There's a little bit difference um, between a, a member-owned and a investor owned. What are some of those nuances? I, th- I think the, the fundamental difference besides uh, the, you know, the profit motive is that uh, my board of directors is made up of, of people that are, are member owners and member consumers themselves. So to be on the board of directors and to be a part of the governing body, you have to be a consumer of, of the organization. So really it's a, it's a grassroots democratic effort um, uh, governed by those that we serve. So my, my seven board members uh, are, are spread out throughout our service territory and they're very, very close to the end use consumer. So uh, if, if a member has a concern or a complaint, they can call their director or they can call me and they'll get me. <laughs> and that's true. Um, and everybody knows who their directors are because they're, they vote on them from their region. So it's set up regionally. So everybody that's voting actually knows who they are voting for. And they've met them personally, usually, and they're longtime members of the community. So it has a whole different sort of hometown, homegrown flavor to it, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it's it's the purest form of uh, the cooperative business model is the purest form of democracy uh, because it, it it's it's transparent everybody can participate to the nth degree that they want. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, you did you had a huge effort or you initiated a huge effort to really understand the economic landscape of the region that you served especially coming out of COVID and you started a project what about mid year of 2020. So we were probably rounding the rounding third base about mid year 2020. And just a little background is that uh, our, our board has had on, on their strategy map for a couple of years, uh, wanting, wanting to be more involved in economic development, but you know, economic development is a, a broad term. It, so what does it mean? Well, I'll, I'll know it when I see it. Well, uh, what, what we did internally was we started a, a, an evaluation process of, of evaluating our entire service territory to find out how can we make an impact uh, with, with economic development. And there's some things, there's a lot of opportunities, but there's not necessarily opportunities that we can control or make, make an impact. And what we found when we went through the process, we, there was a number of uh, opportunities and in industries, but the thing that really rose to the top and uh, it, it was a surprise at how, how prevalent of a problem it was and how impactful it could be by, to address and it was housing. It, it was such a it was such a major uh, major issue, and everybody understood. But when it when you see it in the data, it's like oh my, 
uh, here's an opportunity we need to address. So I know from working with you the past few years, you're a very lateral thinker. When you started asking these questions, did you think that housing was going to be the answer that you came up with that needs to be addressed? Absolutely not. I, I, I think the outcome that everybody thought is that we would get involved in workforce development and uh, maybe, you know, how, how do you dig into uh, getting into the high schools with a program, maybe the, you know, the trade school aspect of it. Uh, never in, in our wildest dreams did we think that the, the most impactful priority would be housing. So how did you arrive at that? I mean, that's an interesting, because we've seen this in a couple of different things. We saw this um, on a completely different front when we worked on what's now called the Copper Project with um with RAG and housing kept coming up, but this came up um, several years ago for Action 22 when we were looking at the asbestos issue. How did you guys arrive at at housing? Well, it it, it just kind of a it, it ended up on our lap uh, it, when you go through the data and you start to look at uh, the, the the output. You know, the a- anecdotal evidence, you, you see it. Uh, and, and then when we actually seen the data, it was like, oh, that that, that makes sense. Uh, San Isabel Electric has lost several qualified workers due to the lack of uh, housing that exists in Warfano and Los Animas counties, as an example. And then you start backing into it. And it's like, okay, yeah, now, now we see it. And, and now we see um, the, the lack of housing creates a, a number of problems uh, when it's, whether it's, Having an employer, I mean, you can develop a project, uh, create jobs, but if there's no place for people to work, the the, the business is either going to fail or people are going to have to drive in uh, and pull from a different workforce. So it, it, it really started to become kind of common sense after you started to dig into it. So what is it about housing that is lacking? Uh, and so just really quick, we have listeners from all over the country and even in other countries. They're not going to understand what the housing, like what's the problem with housing is the question going to be the big question. So what's the, what's the barrier there? Well, I think the, 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 the first barrier is that just the, the tremendous shortage that exists. And uh, um, when you start to look at the, the opportunity for immigration of, of residents, if there's no housing, there's no opportunity but it's also contributing to the uh, loss of an existing workforce that can't find housing to stay in their market. And um, some of the things that that, that we've seen that that, that came out of the data is you will have renters come into a community. And for for the most part, a lot of the the analysis is predicated on on rental properties, is that it it forces renters to rent above and below their means for in and this is a new term for me that that you know obviously I'm a, I'm a utility guy so you, you learn new things every day but uh, for somebody to rent below their ability I think I lost you for a second oh I'm back we lost you you're, you're back. back okay <laughs> so sorry um, technical difficulties exactly I apologize for that but the the moral of the story is is that uh, when when people come in and conform can uh, pay a higher rent, uh, but they buy or they rent the only thing that's available that uh, they're, they're taking away a resource from somebody that, that 
should be renting that. So it, it's kind of this this circular problem when you have such a shortage uh, of of housing. So uh, housing costs should be no more than thirty percent of a person's income, and we have some people that are paying more of that just because that's the only thing that that's there. So. Uh, the, the right supply and in the right balance to match the income was, it was something that we found in the study that was uh, so important for us. You, you, you need a, a, a good inventory of housing for different people. So if there's such a need for that, why are we not, why isn't it happening? <laughs> well, the, the obvious uh, answer is just to construct more housing. Right, uh, uh, and and that's the uh, that's a critical piece of the the puzzle. But private development has really been very limited uh, for for housing, whether it's new construction uh, for ownership or, or new construction for rental. And 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 Sarah, as you know, I'm I'm a data guy because uh, every decision in life can be can be made with an Excel spreadsheet. But the, 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 the data shows that very few, few new developments have happened in rural Southern Colorado over the last few, several decades. Uh, some of the data shows 75% of the housing stock within our service territory was built before 1980. And uh, 80, 87% of renters are living in housing that's now more than 40 years old. So tackling this aging housing stock is going to be a, a monumental task and a puzzle for rural economic development. So you start to see how this aging infrastructure, beneficial electrification with energy industry coming, um, it it all starts to dovetail into, if if we wanna keep people in rural Colorado and we wanna attract people to rural Colorado, they have to have a place to live. That's that's kind of the beginning of the economic development food chain. Right, so, when we uh, when we took a deep dive on this um, a, f- a few years ago, and we didn't look at again, it wasn't a housing thing that we were looking at um, at the time. It was a construction and a asbestos abatement issue. The asbestos abatement for all these homes that you just said are forty years old or more, um, and it's that's a lot of those houses. To do any kind of update or uh, anything on it is so cost prohibitive that they haven't been able to do the kind of updates. Now, I know that's the issue on asbestos. Are there any other issues with regard to that? Well, I, I think when you look at the older stock and the older envelopes of, of homes, they could all benefit from weatherization and, and, and making sure they're, they're uh, more efficient and you can conserve energy for in the facility in the in the envelope of the house that, that's there whether it's a house or a commercial building so uh, yeah I can rec- I can remember the asbestos issue and 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 that's scary but I mean if, if we're going to keep people in the limited uh, stock of housing that we have today we, we need to elevate it we also need to build new housing right so do to do both right so I think the other issue when we look, really look at that is um, water. Was that a part of your study at all? That really didn't hit the radar screen because, it, okay. uh, you know, with us being an electric utility, water is really outside of our wheelhouse. And, and one of the parameters that the board had set for us at the staff level was do something that you can be impactful with. What can we do to move the needle to help people in Southern Colorado? Right. Okay, so let's go back to we 
we understand the asbestos side of it um, a little bit better. How do you weatherize? I mean, how do you do that for these older homes? Well, I, I think there's a number of opportunities. And, and on the energy front with uh, beneficial electrification, the, the state of Colorado is, is really uh, pushing uh, the, the generation, the, the electric industry and the fossil fuel industry towards decarbonization. So when, when we start to look at an envelope, the, the best return on investment opportunities are things like insulation, windows, um, mechanical systems, electric mechanical systems, heat pumps that are, are more efficient in the process. Make sure that uh, uh, the, the structure isn't uh, just leaking the energy that you're consuming because um, not only can you decarbonize your generation portfolio, but if you don't, if you're not wasting energy, that has no carbon footprint. Right. Um, that all sounds great. <laughs> How, but it's very, I mean, that's very cost heavy to do that for, for people's homes. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's part of the data that we're starting to, to uh, gather and develop now is that the, the number one thing that limits somebody from doing um, an upgrade to their, their home uh, just because a home is 40 years old doesn't mean you should just dispose it and start over. I mean, you can upgrade it, but the upfront costs are, are the major detractor for people doing these things. And uh, that's, that's part of what we're, we're really getting into now is uh, making sure that we can miti mitigate or minimize the impact for, for members and non-members to make those investments as, as we go forward. So how are you doing that? Well, we what we've done, uh, uh, we had this idea about four or five years ago to start a division of our company called Empower. So we, we, we've got this um, energy services division of San Isabel Electric called Empower. And uh, we, we don't only just come in and assess for, for our members and non-members, their, their homes for energy efficiency needs. <clears throat> Excuse me, but we also make, the, the recommendations to manage those projects and uh, help them uh, get contractors as well as financing the, the, the projects all together so that those those upfront costs can be paid with the savings, kind of a pay as you save as you go through the process. And uh, that, that way it's it, it becomes affordable for those people to make those upgrades and stay in those homes. Uh, how many people or how, what percentage of your um, consumers or your members are taking advantage of those right now? Well, as, as we get started over about the last year and a half, we've, we've made contacts and improvements with the, about 300 homeowners and businesses within our service territory. So uh, we, we've been sneaking it up, sneaking up on it as, as we go. And uh, we're, we're getting to really getting ready to launch more and more products and services in, in leveraging with, with local contractors. And, you know, just kind of an anecdotal uh, uh, example is that if, if you're somebody that lives in Aguilar or La Vida, it, it's very difficult for you to get a contractor to come in and do electrical work or mechanical work. But if we can go out and we can market to our, our, our members, uh, a product and or service, uh, we can get a contractor, we can keep their attention if we have 20 projects. 
So that that's one of the things that we try to do. And, and that's kind of really to the core mission of an electric cooperative is aggregating and cooperating, coming together for, for the benefit of all. So you can, and we have a, we have an electrician, um, Greenhorn Electric on our board. He's also on the, um, the action 22 board and uh, he is so busy all the time. He can, I mean, he, he can't keep up with everything that he's doing. So your idea is to have a whole bunch of projects put together, ready to go. And then we can recruit additional electric or any kind of the utility upgrade folks to come down, contractors to come down. Right. And, and that's part of the economic development that I think is, is ancillary to the, this project is being able to uh, get those contractors working in the towns that they typically wouldn't go to in a, a, a one-off, you know, in a perfect world, we'd get to the point where we build enough business where, where somebody wants to open up a, an electrical shop in Levita or a mechanical shop in Walsenburg uh, so that we can get those, those services in those smaller towns that at one time had robust uh, trades, trade services. Um, so hopefully we can, with this generate enough business that we, we can get that activity back in those smaller communities. Have you in any of this, have you run any numbers to say, this is how much we need to add to the housing stock um, in this community or has, is that ne- the next part of your, your research? That's, that's what's being in development, uh, being developed internal right now at San Isabel Electric is that uh, in, in each of these communities that we, we serve in, what, what sort of stock do we need? Um, how can we put together um, a, a spec? How can we work with building contractors and, and get that quantity? Um, Laura Getz, who is our business development manager internal at San Isabel Electric, is is working with all these stakeholders in the communities. Um, and I know that there is actually some, some private developers looking at um, the, these communities as well. So if, if we can leverage those relationships with those, those people that know how to build rental properties and develop land and so forth, is it our ultimate role is to act as a facilitator to make sure these things happen. Right. So along that, along that vein, um, you have a project that you're calling our pace or the residential property assessed clean energy. Will you talk us a little, talk to us a little bit about that? So uh, our, our pace is the residential side of the CPACE program. Uh, and it's an innovative financing mechanism uh, for energy efficiency and renewable energy projects at, at the residential and commercial level. And the, the, the beauty of the PACE program, and one of the things that I mentioned earlier is the upfront cost is a barrier to entry. On, on the backside for financing these projects, it's always the risk. What happens if, if somebody doesn't pay or uh, who, who's going to backstop that? And if you want to make want to make these investments, you want to do it at the lowest cost possible. And as an electric utility, uh, an electric cooperative, we have very low cost financing. So to pass that benefit on, we need to really just de-risk the projects. But a PACE program allows the property owner to finance those upfront costs. uh, and, And we can basically finance it through the property and pay back over time. 
So it's it's a way to de-risk the product process uh, of upgrading somebody's home at the lowest cost possible. And it, like I said, the commercial project or the commercial PACE program is already in existence. Uh, there's a little bit of reluctance, uh, I think, at the state level to do the R-PACE program. But uh, it's something that we're, we're going to start pushing on pretty hard because we feel that this housing issue for rural Colorado is a, is, is a pressing need. So we're, we're going to hopefully uh, be able to get the ear of some legislators going forward. So that brings me to, and I don't want to get too far into it because, of course, we're going to be talking about it um, tomorrow. Um, and we're just about out of time with you um, right this second. But... Um, are you guys considering the implications of beneficial electrification in all of these these processes, or is this sort of a curveball for you? Sorry, I lost you just for a second. You started about oh, beneficial okay. electrification. Yeah, is beneficial electrification, um, and we'll talk about it more tomorrow during the summit, but the beneficial electrification, is that a piece that you were already considering, or is this going to be a curveball for you? Um, this has kind of all been part of the overall strategy with Empower going forward is that the, the, the political push in Colorado is to decarbonize the energy sector. So for, for us, we believe that uh, working on efficiency in the commercial and residential uh, sectors, that that's the best solution for energy. As I said, the energy that you don't use has no carbon footprint. So uh, decarbonization through electrification with a power supplier that's lower in carbon can really accelerate the goal for, for Colorado. But the challenge is, is massive. And uh, when you start to look at uh, us serving 50,000 people, we, we probably serve somewhere in the ballpark of 20 plus thousand homes just in our service territory. And you look at over the Action 22 footprint, uh, the, the challenge is going to be massive going going forward but uh, one of the missions of a, an electric cooperative is to help people and uh, uh, it, it wasn't easy when we started this business and it's not going to be easy going forward but we're going to continue to our, on our mission of service and, and helping people as we as we look to the future whatever that whatever that holds uh, as you know Sarah when, when when politics are involved everything becomes a curveball <laughs> mm-hmm. true true that so we'll do a little bit better um discussion on beneficial electrification tomorrow at the energy summit. Um, You'll be able to track that and listen to that live um, on Facebook, um, on the Facebook channel, our action 22's Facebook. Um, We're going to do it there and we'll hear more from Reg. Reg, thanks for being with us so much. Uh, We'll see you tomorrow and we appreciate all the great work that you do for us. And we appreciate everything that action 22 uh, does for Southern Colorado. Thanks for being our voice, Sarah. I appreciate you. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about some more curveballs that uh, we're looking to see if uh, what kind of pitch we should actually be throwing when we get right, come right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. I like Red Rudolph so much. Yeah. I don't know why it is nerds just make me so happy. No, he's good. And it's um, as we travel down this road of economic development, recovery, and restart, it's interesting what keeps coming up. You look at the problem um, or the issue, and right now that's economic recovery, development, restart. And the thing that keeps coming up, no matter who we talk to, is housing. And that's the availability of housing, um, you know, the, the cost of housing, uh, getting new housing, refabbing the old housing. And it's just a key factor in the equation that I think everybody in this business can agree on. Well, and I think it's hard to conceptualize when you are in a more urban area where you see construction happening all the time. Housing is new. Apartments are readily available. uh, And there's lots of layers to the issue of why we don't have the housing we need to recruit the workforce that we're going to need for this incredible um, energy expansion that we're going to see happening. Yes. And and ironically, uh, you go back 10 years ago, housing wasn't the problem. It was the workforce. And then I saw it transition over the years to the, we have the workforce, um, but we don't have the housing. So you can have a company come in, start up, and we have people ready to work, or they could people could come from the outside, but there's nowhere for them to go. And, and a lot of, 
people on the the layman, as you would say on the street, they say, well, I drive down, you know, this road and there's a lot of empty houses. Why don't they just use those? And that gets back into the, how old are the houses? Do they have asbestos? Um, Lead paint's another one that comes up. You know, if you had a house built before 79, I think it is, um, there's the issue of lead paint in the house. And in Pueblo and Walsenburg, a lot of these rural communities, the houses are way older than, you know, 30, 40 years. And that's an issue. So when we did the deep dive, and I think it was the summer of 18, what we found was it was, um, and I guess the big problem and how we got into this whole thing was it was more um, cost prohibitive to tear it, uh, to tear something down or to actually rebuild or make the, the modifications that were necessary than to just leave it the way it is. Yeah. Um, and especially on the asbestos side. And there's a whole of several things that go into that. And we actually ended up working with CDPHE and making some recommendations for them. But there's, so not only does it cost a lot for somebody to come and do the inspection, there's all the regulations that go with mm. asbestos. Um, the, but it also costs a lot to get rid of it, to dispose of it, to do, and it's the same with lead paint. Mm -hmm. It's the same with all of those things with these houses that are very, very old. So you look at a house, we drive by, everybody who drives through Walsenburg sees the same, that same house. I know the house. Everybody knows the house. Um, And it's become a bit of a a public health hazard because not only is it just sitting there with all the problems that go with it, but it tends to be where um, homeless people hang out yeah. or it, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, what's the word squatting that yeah. happens yeah. in these homes that you're, you're like, Oh, these homes are sitting empty, but a lot of squatting happens on these. And then it's it, when that kind of thing happens and there are abandoned homes and you're trying to find the people who own them, it ends up becoming the problem of the municipality. Yes. And so every municipality has a list of homes or a list of properties that something needs to be done with them. And they only have so much money that they can do anything yeah. with that. Yeah. And so that's the other thing that's really hard to think about what you do with that. Yeah. And I, I know the house in Walsenburg, I think we call it the fight club house. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like the house from fight club. It's yeah. on the main street when you yep, drive down yep, there. Yep, yep, yep. The fight club house. Yeah. It looks like they're doing that. something with it now, but the reason that they haven't done anything with it, before is they, they just can't afford to do yeah, it. Yeah, and it's, it's when you're in the hole, you can, you know, nobody, there's not a lot of people that can afford to be in the hole on their main property or in several properties. Yeah. Um, on the upside, we know of people who are doing really well flipping homes. Yes. And so they flip them and they sell them, but that's still not answering the questions on, yeah, and it's, you know, there, there's another problem that comes with that. Um, you look at property price, the cost of property yeah. increase. Yeah. Uh, you know, just even in Pueblo, uh, one thing about Pueblo is we always have affordable housing. That's that's the lure of Pueblo. Um, that's why you have people that work in Colorado Springs. You have, you know, soldiers from Fort Carson or airmen from Peterson that live in Pueblo. Uh, it's just the cost of housing is cheaper down here. But just in the past, I would say, three or four years alone, um, the housing cost is skyrocketing in Pueblo. And, you know, which is good. Uh, It means that the economy is doing great. You know, there's people coming in, there's jobs. Um, But on the flip side, 
you know, drives up the price of rent. Um, you're seeing rent increases. Uh, I know a, a few cases around the area, not just in Pueblo, where somebody's rent went up $300 this year. You know, they go to sign their lease again, and again, it goes up $300. Can they afford that? Um, I don't think their income went up no. to match that at the time. And a lot of people, their income went down, or if they may not even have a job right now. So that's tough. So there is a negative effect of the housing market thriving. Um, you know, real estate just it, almost everywhere in Colorado right now is just booming. I mean, that's the job to get. If you want to go into real estate, now's the time to do now's, it. Yeah. And we know people who are doing that yes, right now, yes, too. We do. So, um, and I think here's the other thing when you think about this in the whole move for decarbonization, the move away from fossil fuels, the infrastructure that has to happen in order to to put into the grid, mm-hmm. there's all the discussions are around that right now. Yeah. So um, when you're talking about expanding, you're talking about, there's not a lot of solar farms or wind farms that are going to happen right in Pueblo, in the city of Pueblo. It's all these rural areas where the yeah. housing stock is so short. So now we're adding onto the cost of the housing, we're adding onto um, commutes and how these, how these workers and this workforce, all of it is going to have to do a whole different thing. So I've thought about that a lot, actually, about how the workers to manage, to build and manage this decarbonization are going to have to do a lot of on the road traveling. Um, And what's that impact? And are we thinking about (laughs) how, how to make all of this balanced? Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't thought of that. Um, that, that's interesting. It's building the clean energy, but using a lot of not so clean energy to get there to build the clean energy. To, cl- to build the clean energy. So then we're talking about, okay, so let's build homes in this. Yeah. And, and there's not, the infrastructure's not in place yet yeah. to do everything that we're committing Colorado to do on that, on that energy front. So that's actually what we're going to be talking about quite a bit at our summit tomorrow, um, our energy summit. We're going to be talking about um, there's four topics that we're going to, or three topics that we're going to actually be covering. And I'm really fascinated with it. What's happening in energy storage. I'm super fascinated with this. Um, what's going on in energy storage. Um, what's different from two years ago and from five years ago. So, and what's the impact on that. And then the other big thing is how do they tax energy storage? How do you tax batteries? So that's one of the big questions happening right now. Which is also um, in the legislature as we speak. It is. Um, We're also going to be talking about beneficial electrification. There's a lot of um, things going on about. So explain to me and people who may not know, what is beneficial electrification? (laughs) That's a great question. So they've actually, this is a brand new term. This is a term that they've come up with very recently. We actually have the person who has designed or who has created the term and he's had a lot of input. He's going to kick off that discussion um, tomorrow. Um, And I don't have his name right in front of me, but he will be talking about what exactly is beneficial electrification. But I think it's finding that balance between upgrading bringing more electric to your home, making your home weatherize, all those things. Like what, how far can you push it before it stops being beneficial? Yeah. And going back to the first part of the show, the 
you know, my, my house is, I think it was built in 74. Um, it needs to be weatherized. And there, there are programs through your provider that they offer um, to help you with that process. Like he was, he was talking about earlier. Um, but initially I wanted to weatherize my house. Okay. Um, it's really hot in the summer and gets really cold in the winter. Um, which is any house that's over 20 years old, 30 years old right now. I, I signed up for the program. I had him come in and look at it and I saw how much it would cost. And I was <laughs> like, well, we will just uh, be cold this winter and hot in the summer because it is pricey. I mean, you're, you're not talking five grand, you're talking 20 grand. To right. come in. Um, that's not even counting like a new furnace, a new air conditioner, uh, you know, insulation. It costs a lot. And for most people, they just can't afford it, nor do they want to. Um, do they want to get in debt for 20 grand to redo their house? It's a lot to I, I couldn't do that right now. Uh, yeah, you can't do that right now. And what's the ROI? How many years out are you on an ROI on that? Yes, and that's true too. It's kind of like uh, somebody once told me um, in a building, they had a commercial building and they switched to all LED lights. And... I mean, it was a larger building, but you're talking half a million dollars. So they went in, everything's LED, half a million dollars. But when would they start actually saving money? When would this return of investment come? <laughs> it was like 25 years 25 down the road. 25 years yep. to recruit, recoup. And I mean, half a million dollars is a lot of money. That's more yeah. than most homes around here are by a long shot. I think our the median home price in the action 22 footprint is what? 200. Something like that. Yeah. So it's like two, maybe 250. Yeah. Um, but so that kind of investment sounds crazy, but if you're not going to start to see savings for 25 years, nobody has that kind of money laying around. Also people don't think like that. Um, right. As Americans, we want our savings now. We don't want yeah. 25 years. Down. We want everything right yeah, now. Yeah, we want it right now. Right um, this second. Or just as humans. That's not even as Americans. That's just human nature. Yeah. The last thing we're going to be talking about tomorrow is um, transmission infrastructure. So, um, XL Energy is doing this brave thing with um, trying to create a, um, I think they're calling it a transmission superhighway. Mm-hmm but they're working with everybody else, all the other players. So Tri-State, Black Hills, um, the co-ops, uh, CRA, everybody's gonna try to work on this to do this big super highway. It's gonna be interesting. Um, we're gonna talk about that some more tomorrow as well. Um, so that would be modernizing our aging infrastructure when it comes to transmission. Modernizing our aging infrastructure. So that also lends to and there's been some discussion. Um, we've had, we were on a call with the governor and with the um, with the with Senator Garcia and um, Chris Hansen and a few others a week or so ago when they were trying to decide, okay, what should the stimulus money look like? Where should it be? Um, the governor's released really where the priorities are on that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um Details are, are still like really specific details are still coming, but the top of the list is, is going to be uh, small business support. And then I think infrastructure, but really wanting to get that small business support 
out there. So he's got a list of priorities on that. Um, we've looked at it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you think it's going to, how impactful do you think that that particular giving a bunch, like doing that part is going to be? We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it all looks good on paper and it sounds good, but the devil's in the details. So we will see how that plays out. We're, we'll see how that plays out. We'll see how um, the rest of the budget's going to look. Of course, there was lots of discussions about um, that budget, but it's the whole the whole issue is the federal government's giving states a bunch of money, and then now it gets who's going to decide? How are they going to decide yeah. how that money should go? And that's going to be tough, especially I think because not all the money from last time was spent. No, no, it wasn't. Um, keep keep going back to that. Um, and I, I think Biden is President Biden is looking to sign it tomorrow. That's what they're saying, or maybe it was today. I haven't been paying attention. To yeah, I haven't. I um, haven't. So we're going to see that fast. Um, that's all going to be coming down within the week. Um, it's going to move really fast, and I think everybody's going to try to get in position. And I think I, I'm going to I'm going to play the optimists for a change, and I'm going to say because we've sort of been through this once before, as far as stimulus, we're going to have a little bit better idea how to navigate that and hopefully how to um, navigate the past um, or last year's stimulus with this year's stimulus um, and do that. There's one more shout out I wanted to give um, that I just remembered. And, and I need to say this to, um, to Kate Greenberg, who is our um, ag uh, our ag ch- uh, chair or our ag commissioner for Colorado. So there is, there was an issue with hemp. Um, and I don't know if you remember. Yes. So um, there's a lot of hemp development, uh, especially in the San Luis Valley. And of course the farm bill says how this is all supposed to go and what the rules. So they're creating new rules. Mm-hmm. So one of the issues that um, one of our action 22 members, and he's been on the show and he's on our board, Kevin Wilkins brought to us, Um, that he had gotten some funds to help develop uh, some ag producers in um, the San Luis Valley. For hemp. For hemp. Yes. So, and it was specifically for hemp and he went after it and everybody was good with it, but the rules didn't quite match up. They, Colorado was still operating um, under an older farm bill that did not include the provisions for hemp. So seeing that Colorado was not operating under the newer farm bill that did have the provisions for him the the funding for it could not come through because under the old farm bill hemp was still um considered i think illegal or was unable to tie federal funds with that so so what the disconnect was is that um even though everything else in colorado is operating on the 2018 farm bill um hemp is still operating on their 2014 um, farm bill um, and she sent this to me yesterday because we reached out because um, Kevin Wilkins was not able to fund, even though the money was there and they said they could fund it because of, there was a disconnect on the rules. Yes. Um, so we reached out to to Kate um, and she sent me and she started working on this right away. And she sent this to us yesterday. Um, and I just wanted to give a shout out to her for working on this. Um, we're not basically you're not going to have an answer until next year on this, but I think everybody's working together to try to help develop hemp um, to add to our ag portfolio in Colorado. Um, so what they're gonna do is they have to do a, a revised state plan. 
Um, that deadline for that is the end of March, so it's the end of this month. Um, and then the review of that draft um, for the members by March 31st, and then they're going to have stakeholder engagement and so on and so forth. So they're really trying to lead the way on hemp because there's not a lot of other states who are developing mm-hmm. um, hemp in a, a really productive and impactful way, um, the way they, it's happening in Colorado. So um, they are working on it, but I, I just wanted to say we I appreciated that she she took our call, she um, acted on it, and then she did a great a great job following up. So she did she did good. It's it's not going to happen for our our folks this year, but hopefully for next year we can we can get them. And and these guys are great. I think about Monty I, um, that lives is down in Del Norte, um, and they have they've been developing hemp for quite a while. But once this happens, they can start to insure those crops and do the things yeah. that they need to do with that. So anything else that came up this week? Uh, no, just a bit under the weather. <laughs> You've been a bit under the weather. Yeah. Um, we've, we're, we have, um, the other thing is we have a big, our, our board meeting and it's our, pol- one of our policy meetings is tomorrow yeah. in the morning. And we're going to be having a lot of discussions on some of the um, legislation that's been introduced. Um, and there's a lot of really, um, a lot of legislation in a lot of different um, arenas that are coming at us um, this next uh this next little bit. So that's going to be, we have a lot to discuss on that. Um, And I wish we had time to do a deep dive on, on today's show on it, but we just don't, we just, um, there's just so much, but it's also a lot of it surrounding energy, a lot of it surrounding ag and then transportation is going to be the next really big discussion. So for those of you who aren't from Colorado, um, we'll just tell you that um, uh, transportation is, um, one of those really, really big, um, really big issues for that we've been talking about for 150 years. Uh, how to do roads and bridges, but the the new big term is multimodal, um, and really how we pay for um, everything that we want to do and that we need to do in Colorado. Um, above and beyond, I mean, we need to take care of our roads and bridges, and that's a big thing. And again, as acting like the layman who doesn't understand these terms, what is the definition of multimodal? <laughs> um, so we're going to have Mike Beasley on um, again to explain multimodal to us because he actually helped write that definition. But it's multimodal is um, electric car, it includes electric cars, it includes light rail, it includes um, autonomous vehicles, it includes all the other things basically besides roads and bridges. So when you and I in rural Colorado talk about transportation, we're concerned about roads and bridges. If you are in a ski area, you're thinking something different when you talk about transportation. And so they've had to start to break this up. So there's actually a glossary of terms now around transportation for that exact reason. So would multimodal be more of the Denver metro areas? Yes. Because you say that. Just thinking of that, um, just how you briefly defined it, you know, electric cars, light rail, we don't have any of that in our area. We have none of that in our area. Um, And 
So I'm guessing we're going to talk about how that's going to impact the Action 22 area. We're going to talk about how it's going to act, but more importantly, how is this, in my view, how is this going to be funded? Because we've tried, in Colorado, we've tried multiple times to pass um, pass any kind of initiative to raise taxes to pay for um, transportation. And every single time that um, that gets rejected. So the, the gas tax is in question. Um, that's how we've paid for it. So some people say we need to pay for it with, you know, there's all kind. everybody has an idea how to do this. And so there's going to be a lot of discussion on um, fees that are going to be um, put on different things. And so the idea is, well, if this is something that you use, then you should pay for it. Um, so we should increase fees on, on a variety of things and it'll be in a whole lot of different places, but it, it's a little bit like um, a thousand cuts. Yeah. That, that's the other part. Um, whenever this gets brought up over the years to the state, even the federal side, um, looking out for action 22 and our members, you know, how does this benefit us? Yes. Because so far it hasn't, you've seen massive amounts of road construction, infrastructure, everything go on in the Denver Metro area. Why down here, we still have dirt roads. Yeah. We still have dirt. our roads that are just. Our bridges that are horrible that need to be fixed. So I, I think, whenever we discuss transportation and we, and we do this action 22 has been a strong advocate for this. I'm just playing the Forever. devil's advocate. Yeah. We really, really, really have to keep the pressure on that. Any type of fee increase, any type of tax, anything like that. We need to make sure that those funds are coming to rural Colorado to the action 22 area. And that the more than what, how are we benefiting? How are we, is what harm is being done? Yes. Is there harm that's being done? Are we, ending up just by the small, our small numbers, having to carry more of a burden than yeah. um, some of our neighbors in urban areas. And I know that the governor doesn't like the term, uh, the, the rural metro, you know, the Denver rural divide, but that's how we see it. Yeah. And it's there. Um, it, it actually, it's, it's a thing. So um, we're going to end on that. No, because it's a much deeper discussion. We'll take that. Um, hey, Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. I still haven't gotten uh, my invitation for March 20th and all the great barbecues that are happening there. Join us next week when I will ask more overly complicated questions and Brian will make another valiant effort to suppress his sarcastic tendencies. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.